Welcome to the Practical Futurist podcast, a bi-weekly show all about the near-term future with practical advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and practical futurist, Andrew Grill. In this episode, what's the future of AI and ethics? I launched this podcast a few weeks ago and the feedback's been extremely positive. Thanks everyone for listening or welcome if it's your first time here. Before I introduce my next guest, I wanted to outline my own point of view about this very interesting area of empathy and ethics when it comes to artificial intelligence. With the rise of artificial intelligence across all industries, commentators and business leaders are now questioning the ethics around these AI systems. While existing AI systems are a long way from being able to simulate human behavior, or general AI as it's being called, many are worried about how we will program these machines to work for us instead of against us. At almost every one of my keynotes, I'm asked about AI, specifically, will we lose our jobs and can we trust these systems? In each case, I explain that AI systems need to be trained by humans initially, and how we train these systems will direct how empathetic they might be. In the end of the day, I do believe that a machine will be able to perceive other human beings well, sometimes better than us. That's the voice of today's guest, a long-term friend of mine, Minta Dial, who has just written a new book called Artificial Empathy, where he tackles this very topic. He argues that as humans, we need to become more empathetic before we can hope to train these new AI systems, and that empathy is the superglue for high-performing teams. So who is coding your AI, and do they have real empathy and ethics in their approach? We also need to have more empathy to be better managers and learn to listen better. How can we create empathy in machines? Minter argues that empathy and ethics are linked. Welcome to the Practical Futurist Podcast, episode number two, where I'm joined by best-selling author, storyteller, filmmaker, blogger, keynote speaker, brand strategist, podcaster, and also my friend, Minter Dial. Minter, welcome. Andrew, thank you so much for having me on the show. Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence. Amazing title, amazing book. Thank you. Uh, the book is an in-depth look at empathy, how it's created, why and how to increase empathy in people, organizations, and machines and the flaws to be avoided. What drove you to write it? Let's say the topical answer is that I think empathy has long been an interesting topic for business. It's not something that we've regularly talked about. It's certainly not something you practice or teach in business schools. And yet it's, it's fundamental to so many parts of the business, starting with the way we manage our people. It's just startling how the idea you get on a tie, you go to the office and you treat people differently. You don't have time to listen to them because we're in a rush, 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 got to get everything done. And by doing so fast everything, we forget to listen. We forget to understand that people have personal motivations and personal issues. It just, my experience said that, well, being empathic can be a really a, a magical skill. Let's say a, a topic that I really felt I wanted to put on the page and, and make it not just a touchy-feely thing or a soft skill, something that really actually materially will change the course of your business if you learn the power of empathy. Yeah. So that, that was my, say, topical answer. The, the, the underneath answer actually was that I started to look in the mirror about how empathic I truly was. And so, well, can I 
could I do more? Could I be better at being empathic? And then the irony of the story is that once I really learned about it, I did understand that I wasn't always being empathic. <laughs> you didn't like yourself. Well, I, I certainly recognized that I could be more empathic. Yeah. And now that I've written a book, the challenge is holding myself up to that standard. Read your book, Minter. <laughs> Darn it. Ask my book. So do you think artificial empathy is an oxymoron? How can we create empathy in a machine? Right. So there's an oxymoronic element to it. But the reality is empathy is about perception. And machines are increasingly, tremendously capable of perceiving. So whether it's vocal, visual, oral, we can now perceive emotions. We can perceive what's happening a lot better. And so in the end of the day, I do believe that a machine will be able to perceive other human beings well, sometimes better than us. You take the case of a doctor and their ability to detect depression in an individual. As individuals, we, we tend to sort of sometimes say what the other person wants to hear. And the same thing actually happens with doctors. And doctors have their own filters, and they're not quite as able to pick up the signs of depression. For example, take an example of... Does a depressed person laugh? And the answer is yes. And so you might miscue laughter with happiness. But it turns out that when a depressed person laughs, the length of their laughter is shorter. If you can cue a machine to detect what's the difference between a, you know, a, a hearty laugh and a depressed laugh, that kind of sensitivity is something that a machine is doing. That's not empathy per se, but it does show it's detection of it's empathy. the detection, right? Yeah. This ability to perceive. Mm. And, and where people get confused is that you don't need to show the empathy per se. At the one level, it's really just about understanding the other person's context, at least in a cognitive manner. Almost having a the machine could say, this person is less happy than normal. So the human then goes, okay, I've got to treat them differently. I wasn't aware they looked less happy than normal. So that's an aid to then have me as a human turn on more empathy? Well, it is about helping, prompting the human to act. Mm. I, I tend to conscript the idea of empathy to the perception component. There are two elements, let's say two definitions, broadly speaking, of empathy. One is feeling, affective empathy, and the other one is cognitive empathy, yeah. thinking empathy, if you will. And the, the feeling one is not something that I think human, machines are going to get, where if you start crying, I cry. Mm. You know, or you know, I start, I feel your sadness. That is a, that's a, that's not the domain of machines, but in the cognitive space, the ability to say, Andrew, you look sad, or at least to perceive your sadness that the machine is able to do. Then the question is, what are you going to do with it? And that totally depends on the context of Andrew. Because Andrew may not be looking for my sympathy. He just may be sad because his team lost and that's it. And, and well, inshallah, or he might be sad for another reason, but he knows the solution. So I, he's just not looking for me to give him advice. Mm. He just wants to listen. He just wants to have somebody to listen to. Yeah. Yesterday I was doing a keynote and I hung around for lunch. And before lunch, there were these stations where I was talking about things and I was opposite the wellness station. So I heard the same pitch three or four times. And what was fascinating, the ladies were saying, someone comes into work and, and you ask them, how was their weekend or how are they? And your condition, oh, fine. She said, are you ready when someone says, no, I actually had a really bad weekend? 
what do you do? I don't think we're trained in a work environment to do that. Oh, it's a bit uncomfortable. Um, Minta's had a bad day or Andrew's had a bad day. What, what do we do? Uh, and then they might say, oh, it'll be okay. And sometimes, especially in a work environment, you just want someone to listen. That's right. I, I think actually in all environments, we could do with a lot better listening skills. I mean, the reality is that we all have 24 hours. And there is this perception that time has accelerated, and yet it hasn't. We, we do need, there are different ways to be more efficient. We can do so many more things with all the digital tools. But in the advancement of our technologies, we've kind of lost our ability to sit, listen to ourselves, our heartbeat, our, the breathing of our lungs, and listening to other people. Mm. And so there's, in the first part, it's actually listen to yourself, self-empathy, self-awareness. And the other one is around with the important people around you. And whether it's at work or at home, the ability just to say, hey, you want to talk, let's just go and, and, and be quiet. When you know that you, every minute is, is a dollar, then we tend to equate that with productivity. Yeah. And that just fleshes out and pushes out any desire to listen. Yeah. I want to talk now about ethics, because when we talk about AI, I get asked all the time about the ethics, and I have a, a sort of standard response that I give, but I'm keen to learn more. You know, what should companies do when they're thinking about the ethics of AI? Well, so empathy and ethics, it turns out, are extremely linked. And if you want to encode AI with empathy, for example, you really need to have an ethic saying, if you want to look at your ethics... How about taking a check on how empathic you are as an individual, as a C-suite, and as an organization? And if that empathy is there, then let's say that you're in a better state to create an ethical framework before you go forward. Afterwards, the issue is understanding the pressure you have to perform and whether you're able to defray that for the sake of a stronger ethical line. The issue with ethics is that it's a very personal story, the difference between what is good and what is bad. And when you have a large team, even a small team for that matter, your ability to coalesce and to agree ensemble about an ethical line can be very deeply personal. And so when you have empathy, it's going to be easier for you to understand each person's zones and, and think also, more importantly, about other people's zones. Because when you're a bunch of white men sitting around the table, chances are you're going to think white man stuff and white man, you know, whatever I've had is my privilege. And yet we might have a customer base that is deeply very different in terms of background or, or sex or whatever, gender. And, and so the, the notion of empathy is, is a key consideration. Afterwards, in, ter in terms of your ethics, the reality is a lot of the ethical conundrums we're going to be faced. There are no laws to understand or run by. And so we're going to have to be in constant mode of, you know, adapting and rethinking our ethical frameworks, which is probably why I mentioned the notion of privacy before. I think today we can do so many things, but it's not because we can that we should do them. When we talk about ethics and AI, often the, the notion of conscious bias comes up, that if you have to program and train a machine, you're going to train it in a certain way. So where does conscious bias fit with empathy and ethics? And and there are no, you say there are no laws at the moment, but all the people that are developing AI platforms and consumers also are going to start asking, who programmed my machine? Well, uh, let me also just add that it's, it's that, that AI is going to be used by criminal organizations, by states, 
in different ways and as well as companies and, and cities for that matter. So there are many different organizations that are gonna be using it. Putting empathy into the way you uh, approach your AI or your this bias you have is gonna help you to look at it from other perspectives and put yourselves in the shoes of the others. I'm hard pressed to say that there's one route in order to do this. The challenge is you, you, you need to perform. You you want to get the data set, getting the data set which is proprietary. It can take a long time. There are no shortcuts. You're going to screw up along the way. If you just keep your eye out for what you think is doing good for society and be vigilant about that ongoing, it'll be important. An example would be as you look about programming your AI, Who's on the team yes, that's doing it? Because yes. you can have coders, and coders have many talents and one particular skill, but usually within that is not a strong emotional quotient. So make sure you try to compensate or complement anyway with people who have maybe a stronger humanitarian approach, more yeah. sociological understanding, maybe stronger emotional quotient. And that might be a good way to make sure you, alongside the lawyer, Yes. Really good, good, good ethics. Diversity of ethics. Yeah. In the book, you make the case for why empathy is not only teachable, but a requirement for success in business and in life. So how can we teach empathy? Well, so I, I don't actually believe that empathy is teachable per se. It must be learned. So the, the key is to create an environment where people want to become empathic. So the first part of that is making sure that empathy is modeled as a behavior up top because it's no good telling the rest of your team to be empathic when you are a running dick. <laughs> and, and that means being having self-awareness yes. and evaluating stuff from the top. Secondly, empathy is a great way to be with your customers. However, if as an organization, you're not empathic internally, it's quite unlikely that the empathy will continue to manifest itself towards the customers. So creating an environment means modeling it from the top. And then there are different ways, according to the amount of empathy you think you have, to foster more empathy. One of the ways, and I strongly encourage this, obviously, as an author, is read great novels. Mm. By reading great novels, it's been proven that you are going to step into the shoes of other people. The character is going to be this crazy man or person or woman, and you're going to learn through great writing the psychology of that person, and that gets you into their shoes. So I personally now have alternating every book I read to be a novel, which wow. gets me into another another space. It's giving me quiet time as well, but it's it's also making my my brain expand into other people's worlds. I hadn't thought about that, and that's so true that I read so many business books and I need some escapism. And you're right, you need to get into characters. That it is probably the best bit of advice I've, I've heard all year. Um, My pleasure. Why will empathy be a key competitive advantage? I think you've almost answered that, but people out there that are not convinced, you can't put a dollar figure on having better empathy, why should they bother? Right, so at the very least, customers are going to want it. When you hear the number of customers complaining about the automated this and automated that and the inability to code the right user experience, empathy is knowing how to design. Any great designer has strong empathy, but if that designer is surrounded by rational, hard-nosed, unempathic individuals, it's not going to be good. So for customer-facing components, whether it's customer service, design of a product, 
managing the sales experience, being empathic, understanding the situation is going to be material benefit to your bottom line. After that, I think, but probably actually really in chronological order before that, if having good talent is important to you and keeping them there with you, I think empathy is the super glue. You're right. Yeah. It's the thing that's going to help you identify when your employees are unhappy. It's going to help you to understand what their motivations are and then play towards those emotion, those motivations and, and ultimately make a better environment where people want to continue to work for you. I'm just dreaming about an organization I've worked at before, knowing that they would probably send people to empathy school and they would tick a box that they've done their empathy training and they come out and be be the dicks all over again. Well, I mean, the very least they're trying. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe they're also recognizing that they're not. And let's say, so on that, good news. But the bottom line is empathy is something that has to happen in the small details every day. And and so it actually, it's quite tiring because it means sometimes taking the time to listen, say, hey, how are you doing, Andrew? I'm not doing well. Oh, wow. Let's, yeah, let's let's stop what we're doing, go and have a coffee or, or let's take the day off. Yeah. What do you, what, and then yeah. someone, my boss yells, mentor, what are you doing? I'm like, well, yeah. uh, you know, I'm trying to do this. Oh, okay. And so in the book, I, I try to tease out a few of these typically situations that happen in business and how we typically do things and how we could do them differently. I remember one of the team I was managing one day, rather than sort of sitting down, cup, let's go to the science museum. We spent three hours there. And over that time, because we weren't focused on what our work package was that day, and we were looking at interesting exhibits, we had a chance to talk. And I think both of us really found that rewarding. Now, if my one-up manager knew that I'd taken my one of my team to the science museum, they may have thought, why? But a, an empathetic manager will go, what a great idea. I'm mm. going to take my team to the science yeah. museum too. Yeah. Do you think we'll start to see the rise of the empathy index so consumers can see if one company's more empathetic than the other? Well, so there there is an organization in the south of England who's created a few years ago an empathy index challenge with that is really measuring empathy. Well, that was another question. Can you measure it? Well, it's very difficult. Um, CVS in the United States, uh, Norm DeGrev, who just was identified as one of the top 100 courageous leaders in the United States, they really try to put empathy into their customer experience. And what they've done is they've measured it. But the only way they measure it is they ask individuals that come into their stores, the CVS drugstore, did you feel that the salesperson demonstrated empathy towards you. Mm. And each person has a different interpretation of what is empathy and yeah. so on. So it's very hard. That's That was sort of the, the first level. And then, then you try to surround sound it with different characteristics that would show that the person's being empathic. It's hard to do. So A, I, I would say, why not have empathy index? Because at least it puts it on the table. The challenge is what are you trying to do behind it and how scientific is it? But I will say this, this index that was created in 2015, it identified 170 companies that had, or that on this empathy index, that were publicly traded. And they were able to qualify them of some large, maybe 50 different types of criteria in order to try to establish the empathy level of that organization. The top 10 versus the bottom 10 outperformed on the stock market by two times. Mm. So that would be some kind of indication. So if you're still curious or, or dubious about whether empathy can be useful for you, there seems to be material proof that will help you on the bottom line. So great book. What are the top three things that you want people to take away from the book? Well, so the top three things. The first is think about 
your own level of empathy and start with that self-awareness. The second is think about how empathy can be a useful thing in our divisive society. And today we have so many issues out there in every country, different political problems and, and societal problems, immigration, uh, employment, and so on. And I think that empathy is something that could be very useful for us, not just in business, but in society. And the third is, as you look towards the idea of encoding artificial intelligence, where you might consider emotions and more specifically empathy, it's a great opportunity to reflect on what is empathy? What is your definition of empathy? Because in the end of the day, you need to know that before you start coding it. So it ends up being a mirror for who you are and what you're trying to achieve. And look at that as a good reflective moment, because ultimately, while you might try to delegate empathy, the reality is it has to start with you. So as this is the Practical Futurist podcast, what can listeners do next week? What are three things they can do next week to be more empathetic or on, on that journey? All right. So the first is try to find a stranger you don't know and ask them a few questions about them, who they are, what their lives are. It can be like a bus driver or mm. someone manning the till. Second thing is break out a novel. Read a good classic novel, something you haven't read. You'll find it uh, hopefully rather entertaining. And the third thing is look inside your business and in what you're doing in your business practice and see where you can strategically try to be more understanding of people that are different from you, specifically your customers. Try to be in the shoes of your customer. For example, call your customer service, not with your telephone number, but with someone else's telephone number so that they can't recognize that you're an employee of that company and ask, hey, listen, I'd like to have a customer service problem solved and see how that experience is. Put yourself in the shoes of the customer legitimately. Walk into a store or if you're in a retail place or order from uh, your e-commerce site, do something that puts you in the shoes of the customer and feel their pain. But also do it for your competitor to see if they're any better than you are oh, God, and learn. Oh, goodness, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, amazing discussion. I'd love to also have you back and talk about podcasting. You've done 328 podcasts since November 2010. Can we have you back to talk about podcasting? Sure. Look, thank you so much for your wisdom on all of these topics today. Where can people find out more about you and your work? So my general toy land is, is on my own site, minterdial.com. I enjoy trying to do things on Twitter as well at mdial. My books are artificialempathy.com futureproof.ly. And then I've also done this other book on the Second World War, a personal family story called thelastringhome.com. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Practical Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at futurist.london. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops at futurist.london. Until next time, this has been the Practical Futurist Podcast.